0: What's going on, world? Peace and blessings. Once again, it's your boy, Derek Dunn, back with another interview for Reviews and Dunn. Today's guest is an amazing songwriter and a member of legendary 90s group, Minute Large. I'm sorry, correction. You wrote Minute Large, the Rude Boys. Yeah, Rude (laughs) Boys. Okay. So, I want everybody welcome to the line, Mister Joe Little, the third of the Rude Boys. How are you doing today, sir? What's up, Mister Dunn? How are you doing today? Hi, brother. I'm blessed, man. It's just like you know. I'm happy to be talking to you. You know, knowing all your work you've done with the uh, Rude Boys and the work with Gerald and the songs you've written. You know, you're a unsung legend in the industry to me. You're, you know, your work speaks uh, for itself. Thank you, and sir. Also, I
1: appreciate you know, it.
0: Coffee business talk, and just, you know, it's everything you've been up to. You know, I know that you're a, a man of many talents, you know, outside of the strong pin game and everything else you've accomplished. You know, I hear that coffee business is uh, another entity in itself, and, you know, you got some serious coffee for coffee heads out there. So we'll go ahead and get started. You know, we we'll get into all that. So the first question is, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, was music something you always wanted to pursue?
1: Oh, yeah, man, most definitely. um, Ever since the age of four, um, I've known that uh, music was was my my muse, that it was my everything, and um, that I had a desire to basically first start off singing. And um, so as I became older, you know, I would find myself, my mother taught me how to use the record player and the 8-track tape, and um, I would just sit up and be real careful with the records, and listen to many, many legends um, that that from the 60s and the 70s. Uh, so I, I really honed my craft from the early age of four, just really being interested in music, loving singing. And um, just as I grew, um, you know, I wanted to perform. You know, I wanted to be a performer. So I was really known as a child prodigy here in Cleveland, as a uh, – Kid First in church at Temple Baptist Church, where the pastor was Reverend A.E. Campbell. Um, I sang there. I started off singing in church. Um, and then, about, you know, after that, I just really trans- transcended to the next level singing in school, you know, in the choirs and even in elementary school. And I'm um, just carrying out, venturing into the talent show. Uh, Sing, which was real heavy back in the day in Cleveland when I was a teenager. So I was known as a a very uh, mainstay in the talent show uh, circuit here in Cleveland, you know, as a kid, you know, as as a teenager, and was known to win many talent shows. Um, And, you know, that's really how I got my start and my love for music. You know, my favorite two singers are Frank Sinatra and Stevie Wonder. When it comes to like R and B and pop music, and then when it comes to gospel, uh, my favorites would be like Aretha Franklin, James Moore, and John P. Key. Those are my favorite uh, gospel artists. So I grew up, you know, studying these people, you know, and um, just making it part of who I was and the talent that God gave me. How
0: did the group Boys end up forming?
1: Um, The Rule Boys, actually, I met Buddy, Buddy, Edward Buddy Banks in church at Temple Baptist Church in my church one day when he uh, came to sing, and um, I was just really blown away by his vocals and by, by his sound. I had never in my life heard someone sing on that level, sing on that level as far as, you know, in person. I would hear on the records, but this guy right here, man, was just, he had it. He had that thing about him, man, and, uh, I recognized that. So, um, I approached him and just, you know, told him I had a desire to, you know, connect with him and and just be around him so he could show me some ropes on, you know, with vocals and just working with him on vocals and stuff, man. And, um, uh, that's how me and Buddy started, the other lead singer of the Rude Boys. We then formed a group called Power. That's the group called Power, which was comprised of, uh, uh, Edward Buddy Banks, who became one of the lead singers of the Rude Boys, my best friend Mark Jenkins, um, and another guy by the name of Eric Davis, who was one of my friends I grew up in school with, and uh, the drummer our drummer our actually was Melvin Cephas, who also became part of the Rude Boys. So we started off as a gospel group um, called Power. So then from there, you know, Buddy came to me one day, and he was like, man, you know, he wanted to do some R&B. And so we started doing R&B, and we named ourselves the Rude Boys. And we started the Rude Boys off with uh, Buddy, um, Everybody Banks, and then Mark Jenkins, who was my best friend, another guy named Jeff Blackie Rozier, and myself. And uh, that was the beginning of the Rude Boys. And so we really didn't perform. We really was like a studio group. We was trying to cut some records. And uh, before you know it, uh, we had connected with Melvin, and a few other guys, Kyle Morris, Rick Scoville, uh, Troy Henderson. And we had a guy named Bud Potts that played guitar for us. And uh, we started gigging. We started really practicing more so. We started off being a practice band to prepare to get on the bar scene here in Cleveland and start performing. And so then uh, we replaced one of the members, Bud Philpots, dropped out of it. Um, Melvin became one of the rule boys. And then... Uh, Larry Bingo Marcus uh, came to our group, who's one of the original Blue boys as far as once we got on, and got on Atlantic Records, and we started gigging at local bars and clubs and traveling in a regional area, area, area here in Cleveland, in Akron, Akron Camp in Cleveland area, and just really uh, going to the bars and doing a lot of different, you know, shows, night shows, and um, that's how we first started performing.
0: A lot of history there. What do you recall mm-hmm. about meeting Daryl Levert for the first time? Okay, so
1: at this time we were the Rule Boys, um, a local band in Cleveland, and we were really hot. We had won Battle of the Bands. We we was really going to a lot of these bars and like really slamming in, and we were building up a reputation for ourselves. So um, I team, I used to team up. I was kind of underage. I used to team up with Eric Nolan Grant, who's one of the OJs. Uh, me and him just started hanging out real tough because he was a background singer for Dennis Edwards of The Temptations. And, you know, I was really blown away by him, like, really being out there with one of The Temptations. And um, me and him built a camaraderie where, you know, there was a thing called the gong shows you know, in Cleveland where you would go, you would perform, and there'd be like three judges and they'd rate you. And so he got me hit to that scene. But I got introduced to a nightclub called The Reason Why, which is was an up scale, swanky, uh like club where a lot of adults were like beyond my years, um, very much more mature at the time than what I was. And um, you know, one of the Cleveland Browns, Ryan Bolton, he owned he owned the club. Him and his wife Coolja. It was called The Reason Why. And so, you know, Binke, Eric Nolan Grant, I call him Binky from the OJs. At that time he wasn't in the OJs, but He uh, introduced me to Ron Bolton and was like, hey, man, this is my brother. He's an upcoming singer, man. You know, let him in when he come in. And uh, I used to go in there on Thursday nights and sing with a jazz singer named Evelyn Wright. And so I would frequent there and go sit in with her and sing sometime, Um, just getting experience singing in front of, you know, adults and not kids and talent shows no more. And um, I came back to the group. And to Buddy, and I was like, man, you should come up to this spot called the reason like, why, wow, man, it'd be jumping, man. It'd be some great singers up there, and, you know, it, it's really nice. You know, there's a lot of girls up there, too. You know, that's why I was really trying to get to with the girls. I was young, some older women. I was young. So Buddy was like, all right, man, I'm going to come out. So he met me up there one night, and um, the lady, Evelyn Wright, invited us up there to sing. And um, during the time we were singing a song called Everything Must Change, i seen Gerald LeVert like, standing on the stairs watching us. And so I immediately, like, was like, whoa. They go, you know, to myself, like, man, they go Gerald Levert So I just, out of nowhere, said, hey, y'all, um, we got Gerald LaVert from the group LaVert in the house, man. Gerald, why don't you come up here and, you know, sing with us. Like that. And he kind of was looking at me like, y'all, oh, man, this dude done put me on the spot, you know. But he came up. And um, we sang a song called Everything Must Change with him. And, like, man, we really rocked the house, man. And I can't believe that I was on stage with one of the uh group members Levert and Gerald Levert. So we did a great performance. And so after we finished, like, he pulled us to the side. He's like, man, y'all brothers can sing, man. He's like, man, where y'all come from? Like, dude, like, y'all cool. He's like, I want to team up with y'all. He, he said, so I want you to. Come so over to my house. I'm going to you my address tomorrow so I can hear you all some more. I'm, I'm interested in working with y'all. So, um, you know, I panicked, man. I was like, whoa. I couldn't believe it that, you know, we really had a shot to, like, with somebody on the level of Gerald Avert to not, like, come together with him and do something. I really didn't believe it, but it came to fruition. The next day we went a um, we, we, uh, guy who was in charge of drills with well, his cousin who was in charge of travel Productions. Andy Gibson um, th- that I would come to know as Andy Gibson came to the door, opened it up and I'm like, come on, son, let's be expecting me. So we walk up the stairs, we get up the stairs and when I turned the corner, the first person I saw was Eddie Laverta the OJs, man. And my, my mouth turned dry. I got nervous. <laughs> Which I had never been nervous before, man, when it came to singing, but Uh, He introduced us to his father. He's like, Dad, he's like, Pops, these two guys I told you about at the club last night that was singing, man, he's like, these niggas can sing, man. He said, so, you know, man, I want y'all to sing, man. Sing like y'all was singing last night. So I went first, and I sung, and I was cool, man. I really didn't do well, man, because I was, I sucked for real. You know, I was nervous. My mouth was dry, and I, I was, it was the first time in my life I ever was nervous, um, but you know, I did cool. So then Buddy sang, Buddy rocked it again. You know, he was like, dad, dad, what you think? After we finished, he was like, ah, they all right. <laughs> In his deep voice. And, uh, Gerald was like, oh man, whatever, dad, you know, I'm gonna work with these guys. And so, um, we proceeded to start working with Gerald. Um, we started working on, on some records and, um, Gerald went to, uh, Sylvia Rohn, the vice president, the senior vice president of Atlantic Records, uh, R&B division and um, got us a deal without them even ever hearing us. She gave us the Rude Boys a deal, and um, we got our stuff together, and then they came down one day to visit with us, and the rest is history, man. So that's basically how we we met Gerald Levert.
0: Dope. And you kind of answered the next question, how you guys got signed with Atlantic Records. So we'll go ahead and segue into the next question. So the lead single from your debut, Rude Awakening, was, Come on, let's do this. And that one really didn't okay. catch on. However, that follow up and still mm-hmm. classic award winning written all over your face, which was on the chart for 31 weeks,
1: is mm-hmm. yeah, that
0: you know, right there. As soon as you hear that, shoo doo, shoo doo, it's my little, you know, <laughs> so I can sing, right. I, can't sound, but I can't sing. But the first time you this sheet music, from Larry Marcus writing the song, Did you have any idea that it was going to be such a just classic catching on and just you know? what I what
1: I did what I did know um, at first when we first started cutting it and we did it um, for the demo before we got into the big studio, I was like, "Hey, this is a nice song." But um, once it came together and we did it in the studio and the production was done, Illyria took. The song down to a guy named Jim Salomon in Philadelphia. And Jim produced, uh, written all over your face, amongst other songs that Larry Bingo Marcus had wrote. And he brought it back from Philly. And we put it in the studio, man. And when I heard it, I'm like, wow, this is, like, different than where it was. But come on, let's cut it. So we started cutting it. And it just... I mean, the magic, man, we felt it. So Gerald, we was like, Gerald, come on, get on the song. And Gerald didn't want to get on the song. He really didn't, man. He, didn't, he was like, man, this is for y'all, man. I'm not trying to, you know, get in your way. I want y'all to shine. He was like, this ain't this y'all record. He we was like, nah, man, you sound good on this. So Gerald went in there and did his part. You don't have to say I'm all that and did all his parts in the breakdown. And, man, by the time we got to the end of that song, man, I don't know if you've ever let the song play to the end, but we was like woof woo, woof woof, and then I was like, "Yo, Mel-. I was like, "Yo, Melvin." No, he he said, "I said, yeah, yeah, man." We was talking, then Joe was like, "Let's just hope we sell a million. And then at the end of the song, I said, "Yo, Melvin," he's like, "What, Joe?" I said, "I love you." And then the song fade out. We knew once that song was cut, dude, that it was a smash single. I knew it. I felt it in my, my blood. So when Atlantic Records released it, come on, come on, let's do this. I was like, man, why are they releasing this? They need to put it out written on safe. And Gerald was like, man, they don't want to put it out. They want to put this out. You know, it's a, a universal song. that's about love. It's, it's about sticking together. And that's, I was like, you know, all right, with this, button, what I envision is coming out. I wanted some R&B love songs. And then I wanted to come with the real thing. So, uh, that came out, came out, and I believe it went to, like, 40 or 38 on the charts. It really didn't make any noise, so the record label started mumbling, like, oh, okay, what are we going to do with these guys? So we took the song, you like, listen, we need to put it all written all over your face. And I tell you, right now today, Sylvia Rohn did not want to put that song out. She didn't want to put put the song out. She just felt like it wasn't. You know, it should be put out. And, I, and we was like, is you crazy? I was like, look, man, we begged Gerald. We was like, man, Gerald, you're going to have to go against her, man. You're going to have to, to talk to her and tell her to put this record out. And he was like, oh, I agree. So, you know, after going back and forth with Atlantic Records, they finally put it out. And, man, the rest is history, dude. That record changed my life. And it still is keeping me going to this day.
0: Oh, yeah, without a doubt, man. I mean, just... um. And talking to you, you know, I'm having a, a memory. I, I used to DJ when I was in the Air Force in the U.K., and I can remember I had purchased Gerald's Voices album,
1: and, you know, mm-hmm. I was just
0: playing stuff, DJing, and, you know, written, up, written all over your face is on Gerald's Voices album, his duets album. And as exactly. soon as I turned going on, on a Friday night, like around maybe 8.30, you know, because I'm, I'm DJing, you know, the – the grown and sexy side, you know, for the older crowd. Brother, it was mm-hmm. so many finger snaps and people getting up, trying to two-step. And this was this an 05, so the song is like 15 years old now. As soon as you heard that opening, you know, harmony that you guys do, the crowd went crazy. And this is in the U.K., not in the States. I mean, I'm over in England. And right. they just, you know, they're carrying that drop that you guys do. So, yeah, still, still a classic song. Right, yeah, so, man, well, you so know, I just, I
1: just I I, just, just got back from the U.K. England on uh, March 1st. I went over there the last week of uh, February before all this pandemic started, and I did a show over there, man, and, um, dude, it, it was so crazy because these people was going crazy like the song was a new smash. Like, it never gets old, man. They were singing the song. I really didn't have to sing the song. I sung the song, but... I really didn't have to because they sung every word, word for word. In England. I was in um in um, uh where's the state day? I don't forget the state where the stadium at. Uh Wembley. I was in Wembley, London. And um it was a great got named in court Courtney Magazine. He he uh booked me to come out there, man, and that was one of the greatest experiences that I've ever had to date, man, just seeing how the crowd just received me and it was just like i feel like a new artist again with a new hit it was crazy
0: yeah the one thing i can um one thing i can tell you about foreigners um just from being being in the military being a military brat um they love r&b music over there man and they do it's a shame that the state side you know acts like yourself you know Real singers, real legendary artists, don't get the same type of flowers that you get overseas, locally. But yeah, right. that's, that's you know that's it's another true. conversation for another uh, for another right. day. So the third single is the slow jam, the the panty dropper, the um the secret weapon. You know when I was you know doing my thing when I became of age. <laughs> Are you looking for me? What do you remember about shooting the video for that one? Well, you know what?
1: We didn't shoot a video for Are You Lonely. That's what's so crazy. And I wrote that song. Um, that was my first number one hit. It went number one. After, And I mean, a lot of people don't realize Rude Awakening album, when we did that first album, we had the number one smash were written, and we followed up with Are You Lonely, which went number one on the Billboard charts also, was written all our faces, Billboard R&B Song of the Year. We received the award for that that year. But we followed up with a hit. Are you lonely I' which myself and uh tony when Tony Nicholas wrote and um you know it did it did it did really well, and it was my first number one hit that I pinned, and so I was a part of two number one hits to be first album, my first rookie year and um it w- it was a great record that we did um that we wrote and um but we never did a video for it that's what's so crazy and it went number one without a video which show you how strong it was. On the radio, it did really, really well. So, um, you know, just the experience of me, myself, being able to write a number one hit record, you know, and as a kid, I didn't even have that on my uh, radar. I did always want a Grammy and a Billboard award or some type of awards, but never did I know that I would have two number one singles my first time being presented to the world, man, and that's amazing. That's rare. That's not... Back then, you know, it wasn't a a, a a common thing to happen, but
0: we didn't. So 92 sees the release of the second album, Rude House. The one thing about the Rude House album that, as an adult now, that I really appreciate was the album cover, which is very artistic <laughs> not really straightforward. So what was the inspiration behind the album cover art for that one?
1: Well, we called it we call we called the the album. The first well first of all the first album was Rude Awakening, so we wanted to keep the Rude thing going. So um after Rude Awakening, which we was the concept of the album was like, Y'all about to get a Rude Awakening because we some bad boys, you know, and in which we proved that we were some bad boys by the hits that came off that album. The second album was basically Rude House. And the concept which on the first song, if you listen to it, was that, you know, we kind of put ourselves there like, you know, the Rude Boys is coming back. They said we can't do it again. So we're going to have to go back to the house, you know, where everything started. So, you know, the first song, we go back to the house, and there's a lock on the house. And so we it's a big lock, padlock, and we bust the lock off. because You know, in the, in the skip drills like, man, if we don't go back to the house, we ain't going to be nothing. We got to really go to this house and go to the shed and put some things together. So we was like, you know, our house is the rude house. We got to go to like the frat house, you know, to the rude house and go back to the drawing board and let's get, you know, let's get the cooking. And so that's the basic thing. And so Atlantic Records came up with the concept, which I never liked the album cover. I ain't going to lie to you. I was not a big fan of the album cover. Um, It wasn't my cup of tea because I'm going to tell you something, with the Rude Boys, our image and the things that we were doing, I really wasn't happy with the imaging of us and how we were projected in the market. You know, you had groups like I was looking at Jodeci, and when I'm looking at hip-hop boots and jeans, I was looking at more of that era and being a part of that and having even more steamier, sexier songs, you know. But our second album, you know, by us being from the Levert camp and from the OJs, we were more polished. We were more of a classic group and more straight up R and B without the hip hop stuff on it. And without the, the current trends, we, we wasn't a trendy like group. We was more like the old school groups, you know? So therefore the album cover, I guess Atlantic tried to make us be something we really did our music wasn't too. So they tried to break up the monotony and make it like a cartoon character, like album cover and, you know, make it, make this kind of hip, but it turned out to me to be corny, man. I really didn't like it. But the concept of the Rude House was basically just to go back to the house and get stuff together and, you know, let's do it again. Let's try to create some hits for our fans.
0: Speaking of hip-hop, the legendary Clark Kent remixed Rude House's first single, My Kind of Girl, mm-hmm. featuring a young, unknown Jay-Z. How yep. was working with Jay? Man, we did the song, and um,
1: Atlantic Records, you know, My Kind of Girl, it was our first release, so they was like, we need this record to get on the mix shows and get, you know, on, you know, in different areas in New York to try to break it. So Clark at that time was the um, hip-hop division, head of the hip, the rap, the hip-hop rap division. And so he uh, came to see me and was like, well, I got this kid from Brooklyn, man, this, Real good, man. He rapped real fast, but the boy is, is bad, right? I want to put him on the record. So
0: um, we wasn't
1: a part of that, but he went in the studio with Jay-Z, and they cut the record, and he brought it back. And I'm like, man, who is this dude rapping fast? He rapping fast as hell, but he dope. Like, he, he hard. So, you know, it came out and started making noise in the, in the deep, with the DJs in New York and in the underground and in the mix shows. And so you, before we know, we was invited. Um, in the village of uh, New York a place called the village we were invited to a couple clubs to go down there and perform a song so he had Jay-Z uh, come to the club and meet us there and I, I remember meeting him and I remember him me and him just standing in the corner talking well I was talking because he was real standoffish man he was really had the same kind of demeanor that he has today like more of a laid back guy and quiet you know and at that time, I guess, you know, that was his hustling days. He was hustling because he hadn't come out yet. And um, I was talking, I was just like, man, what's up, man? I said, you know, you dope, man, and thanks for getting on the record, man. And I was like, man, one day you're going to blow up, man. you good. You know, keep up the good work. You know, I'm talking to this guy like, you know, I'm the man. <laughs> because, you know, we come off two number one hits, and we was on our second album, and he was unknown. But I told him, keep up the good work, man, because, you know, you real dope. And I believe that one day I'm going to hear you. And you're going to be up there doing your thing. And so, you know, he was like, oh, you know, thanks, man. You know, he's a real standout. But he's like, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And um, he performed with us. And afterwards, I went to look for him, you know. And he was on his way out. he was like, man, I'm out, man. I got to get back to my hood, basically. I was like, well, it was nice meeting you. And that's the last time I ever talked to JB, man. I mean, it was like the next thing I know, uh, we would do. we was out on tour doing some shows. And so I'm watching, I'm watching Rap City or I'm watching BET, one of them shows, and I see a guy, like, getting on a Friday jet and rapping. It was an Unreasonable Doubt album. And I'm looking at the room. And I'm like, hey, man, that's that dude that rapped on My Kind of Girl with us. They was like, no, it ain't. I said, that is him. I said, I remember his face, man. You know, I said, he got a face that you can't re- re- uh, forget. And I was like, man, that's him. I said, Jay-Z. Y'all don't remember it? That was his name. You know what I'm saying? And then they looked, and he was like, that might be him. I said, no, that's him, man. I said, this dude about to blow up. And before I knew it, he blew up, and then he went on to be this big mogul now and just a a big inspiration in my life, man. Like, and I just tell people, man, you never know who you see. In the beginning, you don't never know what they're going to be, man. You never know what, what can happen with somebody in their life. But, I mean, just to see where he is is, like, amazing. It's like Beyond anyone's wildest dream to be in a position to be a billionaire, um, and just really be out here doing stuff and influence, have influenced a, a movement across the board in music, not just in R—I mean, uh, hip hop, but in R&B and just music and a culture, man. You know, this guy came and really laid some groundwork, man, and and helped make rap what it is today. I believe, you know, and 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 and, and, and kept rap. Uh, Help keep keep rap is one of the biggest genres of music because if you look back then they was trying to say rap wasn't gonna be around, you know, and that it was gonna fade, it was gonna be a fad. Now it's the biggest music in the world It's the biggest selling music in the world and is the most sought after music in the world. So you know, I believe that Jay Z is definitely a a front runner, a forefather, a, a, a you know, just the greatest. Of all time, never do it to me in my book. You know, as a rapper, man, he is the goat. He is the greatest. I give that to him, hands down, in my book. You know, he's not my favorite rapper, but he is the
0: greatest. Oh yeah, no doubt, and I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Jay fan. And what I always tell folks, you know, just when I, when I, when I talk about Jay, I'm a huge Jay fan, and just no one but Jay. What he came from to where he is now, and just the way that he does it, like dude, he's he's one of the greats. I mean, there's no, there's no argument. Like it's it's the same with his wife, with Beyonce. It's like you know I'm not a huge huge Beyonce fan, but as far as her stage show and oh, what yeah. she brings out, you 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 can't fuck with it. Like it's just, yeah, well, I mean, and yeah. you can't. And I don't even knock her hustle anymore. Because I mean, I've always known she's talented, and I've like always been like a fan, but I'm not a super duper fan. Yeah, and I get
1: mm-hmm. it. You know, I'm
0: like you know, but when Beyonce comes across on that stage, like it's not too many singers, male or female, that can hang with her when it comes to that live performance. And at the end of the day, to mm-hmm. me, that's what it's about. The, the day is that how you come across on stage. But you know, let's get, let's get out of that whole thing and get back to my my, my man, Little. Cause this is your interview, so. Similar to '90s, I feel that your second C D was very underpromoted. In my opinion, Go Ahead and Cry and Tonight are better than most albums released in twenty twenty. Do you feel that the label failed you guys from a promotion standpoint with that album? Um, yeah. We had a lot of
1: um intern we had some internal problems during that time, but also the record company I believe that we got to a point where they really didn't believe in the records, man. You talking about a, a record label that didn't believe in written all over your face and we see what it did. So I think kinda that they didn't know what to do with us. So yeah, they failed us and in some ways that we failed ourselves. And you know, Go Ahead and Crow is a big record. That's another song that I wrote. Um that did pretty good on the charts. And um tonight was a, a album cut, man, but it was is one of is a fan favorite, you know. Um and that album actually that album actually was better than Root Awakening overall. It definitely was It', was, it, was a, it was like an underrated classic album, man. There was some bangers on there, and I really feel I really felt like, man, we were about to come back and just hit the world, punch the world in the mouth and get us at least about. I thought we had about at least three number one hits on that album, man, to be honest, definitely go ahead and cry, definitely tonight. Again, this other song called "Messing Around," or or even "Always," which is like four songs that I knew that should have been singles that would have banged, 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 you know, just banged. But what, I, what what happened was also the music started to change a little bit. Yep. Um music started to change more, sliding towards the hip hop era. And um, I believe on that album, we did attempt to put some rap in the songs and. But it turned out corny, man. It just wasn't in the swing of where everything was going, and I guess we got caught up and trapped up in time. You know, we got caught up in time, and um, you know, it just we got caught up in time, man. And 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 the, and the, the tides started to change as far as uh, you know with with the charts. I believe the sound scan started then. And when SoundScan started, it kind of knocked the old way of records becoming big records, too, because SoundScan really was starting to, like, hey, we got to monitor these records on the sales in combination with the airplay, and if the sales ain't there and the airplay ain't matching up and it's not being there, then the record ain't going to get to where it needs to be, you know. So more so when we started the record business, it was a lot of payola. It was a lot of favors, like, "Hey man, we are gonna stuff a little couple of dollars in the in the in the um m d s pocket and the radio programmers and you know push this record." And it became, it it was what today music is now. That it was kind of no. Go ahead, I got some. Um, it, it it like today, like SoundScan kind of interrupted that and took it to another place. But now we find ourselves back to the era where it cost again. So, so today's radio is basically what it was when we was there. You know, hey, man, you got to pay this. You got to pay to play. And that's just what the radio is. But soundscan came and changed some stuff up for a minute. And then just with hip-hop changing and becoming more so R&B, which I really think that um, P, P. Diddy and Bad Boy started that movement bring R&B and hip-hop together, and it changed. And by the time 91, 92, by the time 92 came, your, your stuff needed to have rap in it, and it needed to be kind of more hip-hop-ish because the New Jack Swing era was coming to an end, kind of like. It was still there, but, but we was, it was still there, but not as it was, you know, more so the hip-hop R&B sound started coming, and, um, you know, that's what happened.
0: Yeah, bro. like, you know, I don't know what it was, because I've interviewed, um, I've interviewed Shy, I interviewed To The Extreme, and I told them the same thing. Like, you guys, the Rude Boys, Shy, and To The Extreme, like, the second album, to me, is vocally stronger, and from a production standpoint, from writing standpoint, it's better than you guys' debut. Now, I still rock with the debut, but, like, I can tell the shift with the second album, you know, like you guys have more more creative control to really be be who you are and show what you could do. And, you know, man, in the 90s, you know, there were so many army groups out that were making noise and having quality albums, but it seemed like all the attention from the mainstream was, you know, well, going to let boys cement shine, you know, for that traditional urban AC sound. And like you were saying, Mr. So Little, everybody else has to have a hip hop feel to it, or, you know, you're not going to get no spins, which is. Unfortunately, because it was a lot of talent in the 90s, and I don't think we'll ever get that again from a a male group standpoint, in my opinion. All right, so 94 rolls around. You had a chance to be part of the collaboration Black Men United for the song You Will Know. How was the experience recording that song?
1: Man, let me tell you, that was one of the greatest things that I think that I feel that... um that could be done in music. That was history man to, to get all these guys together and done on the first to do that song and I mean I'm I'm also um uh, happy that I was even to have a even a lead part on that song, because it was a lot of great singers up there but I was with the great Gerald Avert. So, you know, I just happened to one day just be me and Gerald sitting in the hotel in his hotel room in LA. He was out in L.A. doing some work, and Gerald was like, man, I'm going to be part of this. Uh, there's a soundtrack called Jason Lyrics, and, um, you know, they got they got a soundtrack that they're doing, you know, the movie called Jason Lyrics, and they got a soundtrack that they about to cut, you know, and um, they got this song that they want to put um, called Black Man United, and they want to put a bunch of R&B, uh, some R&B guys on it. You know, do you want to be a part of it? And I'm like, yeah, sure, heck yeah. I want to be a part of it. So you know he was like, "All right, I'm gonna put you on with me." he said, like, "I'm gonna take you." and so, um, we got there, and um everybody was there, man. We start started seeing all the nineties groups and different people there, and it was like a reunion man. It was like a like a family reunion man of all the best of the best from the nineties, and it was with the best of the best from the nineties. We represented it real hard, so we was in and you know, in the studio cutting the record in our uh, blackman night. Brian McKnight was the producer, and uh, the very unknown D'Angelo, he wrote the song. Well, he was there on the piano, and, you know, Brian McKnight was over the production of it. And, um, you know, so we did the song in the studio as like a choir. Again, after it was over, after we did just the basic song, Brian McKnight started looking at people. He's like, all right, y'all, this is what's going to happen, man, and I don't want nobody to get offended. But I'm about to start picking lead singers to do a part of the song. So, you know, is uh, me and D'Angelo is going to sit here and we're going to pick, you know, the different people who are going to be in it. So the first person he picked out the line was Gerald Levert. <laughs> he picked Gerald. He's like, Gerald, he pointed at him. And he, like, holding his chin. He pointed at Joe. And he pointed at some other guys and over here and over here. And then he looked me in my eye man, i never forget him. He's like, oh, you little Joe from the Rude Boys. Come on, man, you got to be on this song. So I was like blown away. I'm like, damn, he feel like that about me? Brian Knight, cho- Brian Knight chose to put me in the songs. And I never thought that I-, I was just happy to be there, man, to be honest, man. I didn't know that he would pick me out individually to have a lead part. And so, you know, there it was. Once again, part of history, man, at this time, I done had a two number one songs, I had a, a, a Billboard Award, Song of the Year, and now I'm getting to chose to be part of history to sing a lead part on, a, you know, a song that is a collaboration of all the best of the best from the 90s. And I was there to represent my group along with my mentor and, and big brother, Gerald, and I, and it was amazing, man. And then to top it off is a platinum single, and what happened was is that when the American Music Awards Came. They picked us to do the American Music Awards, to do the song of the choir. So, therefore, here's another um, landmark for me. Now I'm performing on the American Music Awards with Prince. That year, Prince and Madonna did a duet together. and uh, uh, No, no, Babyface and Madonna did a duet together. Prince performed. I got to meet Prince. I mean, you know, I just got to meet the elite of the industry and pop country and rock. And, um, you know, just life is great, man. You know, after that, it was just like I, I said, Lord, man, there's nothing that – I mean, I, you didn't help me fulfill everything that I've ever wanted. I got awards. I got number one songs. I performed on the awards. And um, I'm on soundtracks now and movie soundtracks, man. I mean, I was just really blown away by you know, just the way and that the you know the the creator was you know where he was putting me and letting me experience.
0: Yeah, man, that's something that um, as long as a class again is twenty six year twenty six years later, it's something that we really need now. I think just to get the best of the best together with some of the original members and do like a modern version. You know, fine. Well, I ain't gonna say no names of some of the things they can't sing, but. Just to give, like, a new version for 2020, just for everything that's going on in the world, it'd be a great look. So, 94 also sees a release of your solo debut, putting it down.
1: Uh-huh. I've
0: tried to find a copy of that one for years, but I can't find it to save my life. So, I got to ask, <laughs> man, do you have any plans to re-release it digitally for music heads like myself? Man, you know what?
1: I'm, you know, I've got a label called Brother to Brother International, and i got a distro deal with Warner. Um, and, you know, we've talked about reissuing the album. I've talked to the, the label, and um, I think that we're going to move on that. I really think that they're going to release it through one of their smaller companies like a Rhino or something eventually. But I'm going to try to get hold of it before they do. You know what I'm saying? Because a lot of people don't even know because I did it under the name of Jay Little. Um, yeah. A lot of people don't know who the lead singer from the Rude Boys is doing that album, and then a lot of people do know. So you know that's something that we're working on at this point, man. Because a lot of people, okay, if I come across, they like, man, that's a classic album, man. I love it, man. And you know, I got a couple of singers off that to be, you know, decent. You know, they didn't really push it that much. I think I sold about, like, 150,000 copies, which is was good for back then, kind of, just with no push from Atlantic. But um, just to break away and be able to do a solo album on Atlantic, man, it was a great experience. I cut it in Philly. I actually moved to Philadelphia. And uh, Gerald and all of us, we went up there, and at the same time, he was doing a groove-on album, and his brother, Sean, was doing his album, The Other Side. So we all did our albums up there at that time along with Mark Gordon and Tony Nicholas and a few other producers. We, uh, went up there and like, um, really just camped out for like about eight months and stayed and just worked on our albums. And it was a great experience, man.
0: You were in the midst of of a successful writing and production career as a solo act when the Rude Boys reunited in 97 for the album Rude as Ever. But unfortunately, you weren't a part of that album. Why did you decide not to participate in the semi-reunion?
1: Well, there's a lot of personal reasons that was between the group, um, which I'm not going to disclose with other people, oh, but not myself. but not myself, um, Due it, you know, I, I don't put people's business out. But it was just some things that was going on that I didn't want to be a part of. And at that time, I was doing really well, even though my solo album didn't do well. I was writing and producing, man, and making a lot of money and just really wanted to concentrate on uh, writing and producing. And I just didn't want to be a part of something that I felt that wasn't conducive to my life. So, you know, I just I just wasn't part of it, man. They came to me. They, we had a meeting. The guy, Jim Buchanan, who was backing them, doing it. You know, we all sat down and talking. and at the end of the day, it just didn't work for me. It wasn't nothing that I desired, you know, to do.
0: in respect. And... Sometimes it's like that um, with groups and everything. I always say, you know, if I could sing and I ever got success, you know, and I was in a group, even if I wasn't the lead singer, I'd make sure that I had some kind of other skill to make sure I could always eat <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know always have a face of the industry. But what I will I'd say, what I will say, what,
1: what I will say, Mr. Dunn, is that I think that wasn't a good decision, though, in mm-hmm. hindsight. If I had another chance, I would have made a different decision. That's honestly speaking.
0: Cool, cool, yeah, because, I, I mean, you know, I'm an album credit reader, and I'm, I'm going to get into that, too. But knowing, like, reading the credits and everything, because I, I revisited the album, you know, before I set the interview with I'm like, hold on, man, this ain't Joe's voice, on, you know, on these songs. So I had to go inside and look at his own. So I'm like, yeah, let me let me ask let me ask Little about that question, because, Like, I know he was on that project, because at that time, you know, you're making all this noise as a songwriter, and just killing it as a songwriter, and pretty much having that good working relationship with Gerald, so, yeah, cool, all right, so, as an album credit reader, I've seen your name credit numerous songs for the artists outside of Gerald Levert. If you don't mind, I want to take a trip down memory lane with some of those songs, and your memories. With the artist, who you wrote for. So up first is Jenny Wines' Love You More. Hello?
1: Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Yeah, man. Oh, you good. Um, love You More, man. I, I really... Enjoy being a part of that that, that song, man. Um, I did the track on it. And I had co writers uh Jay Sean Champion. Um and then I had a guy named uh, oh what's Larry, Larry uh ooh, he don't kill me. Um, oh, I can't think of his name. He's kill me, man. This guy named Larry, and then I had a uh, um Brandon Howard, who's the son of Nicky Howard, his name is B. Howard. He was also on that record, man. And um, you know it was it was a good it was a good it was a good record. Me, uh, with Jay Sean, B Howard, and myself, we wrote it. Me and Brandon, uh, B Howard, worked on the track together, and we wrote the words. And it turned out to be uh, a keeper on the senior album, um, with genuine in it, and it did well. It became a single, and um, the vibe that I I targeted to him on purpose because the way that I did the track. He had just had the song out, My Whole Life Has Changed, and uh, Differences. That's the name of the song uh, by a guy named Troy Oliver who produced it. And I really tried to piggyback off that and give him a, a song that would remind him of the hit he had just had. And um, he bit into it. The vibe, he bit into it, and um, the song got placed with genuine, and it did really, it really it did well. The Temptations, Proven
0: and True.
1: Yep, that's The Great Temptations, man. That's how I got my Grammy Award. Um, Then with The Temptations, Gerald um, told me that he had just uh, got slated to write a couple songs for The Temptations, and he asked me would I do it with him. And, um, you know, I produced those tracks um, along with Gerald, and we wrote it, and we got it on that album. And um, that year, uh, they won a Grammy Award for Best Vocal Performance Album, and um that's how I got my Grammy Award. We had the B2K. two singles and our singles and our singles was the only two singles off that album that was released also.
0: BQK fantasy. Ha
1: <laughs> another great uh thing I, I hooked up um uh, with Eris. I believe it was was Sony, Sony Records and um I was brought in on the project project by a guy named Dave McPherson, who was then um, over the, the black music or R&B music department at Sony. And, um, you know, he put me on, man. He's like, I got these young guys, you know, that I want you to work with their vocals and, and you know, kind of get them together. He said it was like Mark, Marcus Houston from one um, little group. What was the name of that group? Uh, yeah, he was in McPherson. Yeah. yeah, Marcus With immature, immature. with immature. Yeah, he was in the group with immature, and he was like, "Hey, man, I got a, uh, you know, Marcus Houston. He's working with them, and um, he's also working with with uh, with some guys that's been in the business." He said, "But I want you to really get with them and work with their vocals." So, you know, I got that song going again. Me, um, I mean, with Jay Sean Champion, along with Aristopher, uh, a production team that um, uh, Christopher, and then, uh, we did a record with them. And, um, you know, it came out to be a, a good record, you know, and it, it made the album. And just another, you know, notch that I could put up under my belt working with a great group, a legendary group, because B2K was the only, like, R&B male group out at that time because it was fading. And they was, I believe, was the last of R&B group that, uh, that, that would be the end, actually, of R&B groups, man. gene rice let me do you right how let me do you right let me do you right gene rice the great dream uh gene rice who had you going to get served he had just come off a hit called you're going to get served and um gerald had got you know uh they they sent him to gerald for gerald to do um some songs on him and uh we did let me do you right i went in and got the track together and uh, me and gerald produced it and we wrote it together and uh Got on on, uh, Jane Rice, man, Jane Rice's album. And last
0: but not least, the legendary Keith Sweat, I'm Not Ready.
1: (laughs) Keith Sweat, man, man, I love that cat, man. You know, it was, you know, working with Keith took me to another level, man, as far as making money, dude. I never knew that a writer or a producer could make the money. That um, I made dealing with him and Drill at the same time. Actually, the albums came out like a month apart. And when I got my first check from that album, well, I was gone. It was over. Boy, I was like going crazy. But it was a it was great working with Keith. I went to Atlanta and stayed in Atlanta for a month with Keith. Um, I actually stayed at his house with him, and his studio was built in his basement. And we spent a lot of time, and we worked on several songs. We worked on about like six songs. For his album. Two of them made it, I'm Not Ready, in Just Another Day made his album, and it did good. And we also, while I was there, we worked on a singer called Rome, who had a – I had uh um, I Every you. time I see it, I'm crazy. He came and we worked and did a cut on – yeah, we did a cut on him. And then I also cut a song on this group called Old School, who was one of Keith's groups. Um, got to work with him and see Keith was just coming off that Twisted album, man. So, you know, he, he was on a high horse, man, and really ready to get back, you know, get back and go. And um, just just had a great experience working with Keith, Keith Sweat, man. He's a legend, um, one of the top male artists of all time, in my opinion, when it comes to hit records and songs, you know. Um, and he's a great writer. A great guy, man, and, you know, you know how to get that paper, man. You know how to get that money, man. Keith a hustling. He's from Harlem. So I learned a lot <laughs> from him, man, not just music-wise, but just in life, man, how to keep your work ethics and um, how to really, you know, stay on top of your game. I'm going to tell you a story about Keith. He helped change my life, man. You know, there was a point when I was going through some hard times, man, and I called Keith, you know. At this time, Gerald had passed, and I called Keith to borrow some money, I was like, man, you know, kid, man, I need you, man, because you owe me about, like, 5000 And, you know, he was just like, like, who is this? I'm like, this is Joe, Joe Little, dude. He's like, no, who is this that's calling me? I said, this is Joe Little, man. He's like, this can't be Joe Little. And I said, like, well, why would you say that? He's like, man, Joe, I'm about to tell you no. I'm not giving you no money, man. He said, you're too talented to be broke, man. He said, you too talented to be broke. He said you, you 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 got you you got a legacy man and you know, nah man, I'm not gonna enable you like that. And you know I took offense to it in the beginning, man. I really it hurt my feelings because I was like, dude, you know. And he even when he's like, Man, you made a lot of money with me, man. What what have you done? And you know, he's like, No, nah, man, nah, I'm not gonna have to say no. And what it did, it taught me a lesson that it always ran like, Joe, you're too talented in so many ways for you, boy, as long as you have a voice and you can write, there's some way that you should be able to make some kind of money somewhere, you know, and um, it changed my life, man, and it got me really backed up on, you know, doing music, because at that time, I wasn't even, you know, I failed back, man, I was just not really doing nothing, and I actually just drifted back into just being a regular guy, hanging out in the streets with my friends, and, you know, just, like, Put myself in harm's way and getting involved in stuff that I shouldn't have, you know, and just, like, really not doing well. And um keep changing my life. It actually was the first thing that made me start getting myself together for me to get back to where I'm at now.
0: Respect, respect, and thank you for uh, sharing that, man.
1: Oh, yeah, no doubt. So,
0: the music industry lost an icon when Gerald passed away in 2006, and just... Based on you guys' relationship, I'm not going to ask you to revisit that, but I just have one question as someone who was side-by-side side with Drell for so long. So as someone who worked with Drell so closely for over 20 years, what would you say is his best vocal performance and his most underrated solo album? I'm going to give you mine after you, after you tell me yours.
1: Um, his greatest vocal... You know what? I'm going to say i give everything the album grew on because it made him explore different places that he wasn't used to. It made him be, you know, he did like a pop song. I'll give it anything and everything to fall in love. Um, he did some stuff and he really experimented with his falsetto. I mean, he really just expanded as a singer and really went for something different. Um, I think that was his most diverse album because he really tried, he got away from just black music and started doing just different things. He, he did do some R&B stuff, but it was just much different. Um, and actually, that was the album that he worked on while I was working on the Putting it Down album. I believe it came out in 95 or 96, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it was just his, I don't, I'm not going to say it was his best work, but I think that to me, it was phenomenal for him to cross the line and open up and try to do something different. But no, he had more other albums where he had greater vocal performances. But for him to change up and do something different, I would say that it would be, be- better vocal performances because it pushed the limits for him to transcend to other levels vocally and do something different. Yeah, right, I'm so going to say, my, b- mm, go yeah,
0: gonna say my, my best vocal him is from the Groove On album. I'm going to say Can't Help Myself. But I think his most underrated album is Do I Speak for the World, the one from 04. Because when that one dropped, you know, that's when I was in the Air Force and I was going through some stuff myself with um, a couple of young ladies. And Do I Speak for the World helped me through a lot of um, tough nights and just where he was going on that album, just growing as a man and the stuff he was singing about, like self-improvement and still keeping, you know, he still had the R&B bangers on there, but he was just growing as a man and growing as an artist with that Do you know, I Speak for the World album? So I think that's his most underrated album from a solo standpoint is that one.
1: Yeah, you know what? I, I will agree. I believe that it was underrated but I think that people didn't embrace it because he was speaking of positive and change and that's not what his fans wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about that love, man, and that soul. They wanted to hear that soul and that love. And you know, he was going through a different phase he was changing you know and you know as an artist man when you've been around that long since since 85 he, he first came out 84 you know you started 84 and you you wind up being in two at 2004 you would what, what year was that 2004 you said in 2004 right so you're going from 84 94 to 2004 you're in all these decades And you got to find a place to try to change. So I did commend him for expanding because you can't keep doing the same thing and be happy, man. You got to try to do something different. Some guys stick to their lakes and the rivers that they used to and they don't chase the waterfalls. But Gerald tried to really go and make a difference and make a change within his music, which I agree with. Now, it was underrated because that yet again was another time that he was trying to change his style and really like speak positive, you know, because that's where he was, man. And um, I tell you, man, Gerald was like kind of depressed around that time too. You know, this was dealing with a lot, man, responsible for a lot. And it showed within his music of where he was and what he was trying to do.
0: Uh, You know, sometimes that's the best when you get your best, um, your best work. I mean, Case in point is Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album. You know, he saw what was going on in the world and produced some of his best work. And, you know, Gerald, rest in peace. I'm a firm believer. But I still think that we didn't get the best of, you know, what Gerald could do. Like, we were robbed of his true, you know, talent. Like, we, we were just in a glimpse of where he was going musically, in my opinion. Yeah, but,
1: you
0: know, man. That, I mean, yeah, he. I'm not going to scratching much, the surface. Respect for you, it, it, you guys' relationship. it's it's cool. it's cool, man. Um, it, it's cool. Hello. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Yeah, it, it's cool. If, um, that was, like, I, that was a big thing because
1: I, I, I was no, in a no, cool. that's no, cool. I love to talk about Gerald, man. I mean, he's my everything, man. If it wasn't for Gerald, you wouldn't be talking to him to to me, and I wouldn't be out here still doing what I'm doing. So, I love to give thanks and talk about my mentor to people. You know, I'm to the point where I can talk about him. you know, at times. And, you know, it it feels, it's hard still dealing with his passing, man, because, you know, we was like best friends. We was like brothers. His birthday is July 13th and mine's July 14th. And, um, you know, we, we used to have a birthday party together. We traveled, went, gambled together, just did a lot of things one-on-one together as like brothers, man. So, he meant more to me than just a person that helped me in my life musically and got me to a place, but it was someone I loved, and I learned a lot from him, and I, I miss him dearly, man. I just never could imagine this world without Gerald Levert being here, man. But, you know, how God is, God's plan is always perfect, and you have, that's God's work. There's nothing that we could add or take away from it, and we deal with it, man, but I, I miss that dude, man. And He was amazing. I used to tell Gerald, man, that, his heart was so big, it was too big for his chest, man. I was like, Man, that that, that big old chest is yours. Can't take that big heart you got. Was like, man, you are a loving person. You give a person a shirt off your back. He was a really good dude, man. He was a teddy bear. He was that lovable guy. He was what he was what his fans felt he was, man. So yes, the world was robbed of the best of Gerald. He left us a great body of work. But the world, you know, is not the same, and music is not the same with icons such as Gerald Levert, and no, I felt like he was just really scratching the surface, because when I look at myself, I'm about to be 52 in a couple months, and why wouldn't Gerald Levert still be here? Just imagine the work that he would have done and accomplished, and be doing still right now. He died a young man. He died very young, man, and so you know, he sometimes say the good die young, man, and he was a good dude, and I mean, I'm just glad that he left a nice, large body of work behind for us to cherish, and, you know, that he did what he did. God placed him as an instrument in my life for me to be able to do the things I need to do.
0: Yeah, that's so still one of my biggest, um, biggest regrets is in '02 when he was touring with Luther to promote um, the Side album, he was Luther's opening act, and they came to DC, and my mom had, you know, an extra ticket. And me being young and dumb, you know, I didn't want to go, you know, because I felt like, man, that's, just, that's not for me. So I missed out a chance to see live and Luther live. And you know, a year later, Luther had that heart attack, and to this day, that's one that's one of my biggest regrets of not going to that, not going to that show. So wow. following Gerald's passing, the original members of the group reunited briefly. Why was the reunion so short-lived? Which reunion? The one in those 06. You guys reunited. Real uh, yeah, Boys reunion. Uh,
1: oh, well, when, we, when Gerald passed, what happened was we got together. and We, we all came, you know, to the memorial, and we wasn't together at that time. But we said that we would get back together, so I put the group back together. We started actually touring, but uh, Larry Marcus didn't come because at that time, he was real heavy in the church, and he was just feeling like, you know, um, that that wasn't, you know, what he wanted to do with his life. So that was cool. It was respected. So um, uh, Buddy, Melvin, um, and a guy named Dwight Thompson, who was on the Root Ever album, we went on and we hit the road. You know, we started hitting the road. During that time, Buddy got sick, and um, he wasn't there. So it was just me, Dwight, and Melvin. And then shortly after that, um, Gerald had died, and so Sean LaVert acts. Dwight to come be in a group with him and Mark Gord. So he took that. So it was just me and Melvin. I added a guy named Robert Cruz for a little bit. And then um, a lot of different things started happening around 2009. And we broke up. I broke away from the group. Basically, some things happened where we wasn't together anymore. And so I went and I moved to Atlanta and we established the Rude Boys with uh, two members, Kenny Miles and G Boat. which currently today we are the Rude Boys. Um, and we do, you know, we tour and we do shows, you know, uh, as the Rude Boys, because there's really no more original Rude Boys left performing bingo. Larry Marcus has passed on, and Melvin and Buddy are sick where they can't perform. Uh, Melvin recently had a stroke about five months ago, so... Um, He's basically out looping, and Buddy has been sick for years, so it's just really me waving the banner, and uh, with the two guys, we've been together since I believe 2013. So we've been doing our thing, and uh, you know, just doing shows. Put out a couple songs that you'll be able to find. Like one called "The Greatest." Um, we also did a song called um, um, for, "For the Trayvon Martin." I think when it, when, uh, when that happened, we did a song called, I can't think of it, kind of brain freeze, um, uh, Believe in Love, a song we we did called Believe in Love, and then we did a song called Swag on it that we released also. So we had, we had like three or four singles in the market that we released as a group, and we do do shows, you know. Um, so that's the rule, boys, as, we, as you know, just a reunion of it, fell apart. Larry did come back to the group for a minute, but then, you know, in in turn, while he was in the group, he passed. And so everything really just started to fall back apart. You know, I was doing two versions of the Rude Boys, actually. I was doing the original group, which was just me, Larry, and Melvin. Um, And, you know, those two guys, you know, they got sick and kind of faded. But I still had the other group in which I did shows with them also because we had established something. You know, sometimes people would be like, well, I want the original. So I would pull together the originals and we would do it. And then, um, but in the market with the other group, we had been doing so much by living in Atlanta and doing a lot of shows. It really was more overbearing. You know, they didn't really kind of remember the uh, original group and they were booking us. You know, as long as they seen my face, basically. That's basically what yeah. it was. So, you know, that's basically the Rude Boys saga and um, where we sit today.
0: Right. So I want to get into this um, coffee business cuz I'm always ecstatic when I see a brother start a different kind of business. So what was the inspiration behind the coffee business thing? Let me make sure I get it right. Yeah. Joey B Coffee, right?
1: No, it's Urbane Joe jo Coffee. Urbane Joe Coffee. Cool, cool. Urbane. Urbane like a bee.
0: Um Urbane Joe Coffee
1: was Yeah, it was it was a uh, it was blown to my attention by a shiny member named Terrell Howard. Uh, you know, like, hey, man, he was like, you know, I ran into a couple of dollars and he was just like, man, you need to invest. You need to invest into a cafe. I was like, a cafe? He's like, yeah, a coffee shop. You know, you could do that here in Cleveland. And, you know, people would be receptive to it because of who you are. You can really do something with it and let's try to do that. So I was like, oh, coffee. I'm like, oh, man. I don't know. So. I went and sat at home and really thought about it, and I might have taken it to my wife at that time, Marilyn, who passed uh, in 2016. But in front of her, I'm like, what do you think about a coffee shop? And she was like, a coffee shop. She was like, well, she was like, it sounds like something to be done, but I don't know. So you know, I just started doing research on coffee, find out that it was the second biggest commodity in the world after oil and just at that time. Starbucks had just really started. This is like in two thousand, late two thousand eight, early two thousand nine, and so they was really booming. And college students was on the coffee thing, and you know, coffee was really like resounding, you know. And so I was just like, you know, I went back to my to my family member, and I was like, "Dude, if we do open up a coffee shop, what whose coffee are we gonna sell?" It's said, "Starbucks got their own coffee, and you got all these brands. Are we just gonna be selling everybody's anybody's coffee?" I said, "By me being who I am." we can feed off the theme of me having my own coffee. I said, all these other entertainers got these different things that they're going to be entrepreneurs, you know, I believe that we can do a coffee. So we came up with a name. We went on a mission to try to get our own coffee, and we came across some private labeling opportunities, and I started it. I opened my first coffee shop in um, 2010, late 2010. And um, from then on, man, I've just really been involved in the coffee business to date, um, with Irving Joe, uh, coffee and, um, I love it, man. And, you know, I just, uh, represent it, man. another stream of income. So I I believe, you know, as lucrative, I've had like about four coffee shops in turns I've had and I've closed also, but, um, you know, it's a good business. So now I just really sell coffee off online. Um, I make it available hand to hand. I had a couple, uh, uh, port, you know, uh, Different places where it's posted up where people can go buy it, man. And I'm just really consumed in that, and I love it. I'm about to actually prepared to take it to the next level, even to the next level, you know. So, yeah, man, that's the coffee guy.
0: <laughs> Why is this kept you made an appearance in the 2004 film Against the Ropes? <laughs> one one yeah. of the favorite films on res is a musical biopic. Who's one artist musical story you would love to see told on the big screen?
1: Who's who's? Hmm. Um, I would like Stevie Wonder's like why he living man. I would love for his story to be told. Definitely, With Stevie Wonder, um, because he's one of the probably the the greatest male artist of all time. You know, as far as when it comes to male. Black Singers. I would love to see Stevie Wonder's story um also, I would love to see Princes story um you know he's a great icon, and I think that would be a great movie, and whoever do it is gonna be a box office smash. It's just gonna be out the roof, man you know Prince um so definitely prince Stevie Wonder um. I heard there's a Aretha Franklin movie, which you ain't even didn't even mention that I did a duet with Aretha Franklin. It was unreleased, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I um, did an unreleased duet with Aretha Franklin. Um, and, you know, she was a good friend of mine. She actually requested me to sing um, on a song, and the, the writer and producer of the song was Brian, uh, Morgan, Brian Alexander Morgan, who did all of the SWV stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah. You know, we did that thing. So, you know, just loving her and how she showed me love, man, and made me part of history with her. We would definitely like to see a great movie on Aretha, Stevie, and Prince, man. Those are the big three right there, you know, that I really, really think would be, be great movies? movies.
0: Who has the rights to the, the, the song you did with Aretha?
1: Um, at this time, I believe her family has the rights to it, but... Yeah,
0: you know,
1: it was going to go, go on her greatest hits album, and Clive Davis elected not to put it on there. It didn't make the cut, but I got a copy of it, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And every now and then I'll play a little snippet of it to people or whatever, you know, or let them hear the song. I'm like, yeah, I got to do it with Aretha Franklin. But I think at some point that it will
0: be released. All right, so speaking on biopics, I got to ask, you know, just straight no chaser. What did you think about Darius McCray playing Gerald Devert in the Mickey Howard movie? Do you think he nailed Gerald enough given the time frame that he had? Um,
1: I think he did cool. You
0: know, he, he
1: I mean, I guess he was a good pick for it. He did kind of do a little something to make it, you know, make it, make it convince him a little bit. It was cool, man, you know.
0: He, I, I think Darius did as best as
1: he could. No. Because he pulled it
0: off. He did he did pretty good. He wasn't that bad. And you Gerald think? <laughs> Gerald's a awesome. uh, uh, story because Gerald has an amazing um story. And even if they didn't do a um a straightforward biopic, just a documentary, because Gerald's like you. I mean, Gerald's thin game who he wrote for and everything that he was doing for Cleveland and just how beautiful his spirit was. Yeah, Drill has an amazing story mm-hmm. that he to be told hopefully one day, you know, when the
1: he yeah. feels
0: his time. Drill has a great story. So, yeah, he did
1: an unsong- they did an unsung
0: on him, but they really didn't scratch the surface of who General really wrote. Oh, yeah, yeah, not at all. So whether it's behind the scenes, touring, or releasing your own music, You've never slowed down musically. Do you enjoy music in the age of digital or do you prefer physical media? Um I like
1: it. I like the, I like the format now because it gives artists now opportunity to build up their fan base, make more money. Um but you got to spend money. It takes a lot of money to get get it to where you want. You know, get a de- to a decent place because now, as artists, definitely our age, we rely more on touring. So right now, at this point, is really a bad time with the COVID. You know, it kind of shut us all down as far as entertainment, and we don't even foresee when that's going to start back up. Honestly, um, they're talking about like starting next year more so. So, you know, uh, yeah, we've been stripped. We've been stripped of that by COVID, which is. Nobody's fault is an act that, you know, is happening. So, you know, I like the digital era, man, because it gives us freedom. Right now I got a record label called Brother to Brother, and I put out three um, videos and songs in the last, you know, last year. I put out three videos and songs. Just, you know, stay relevant and um, stand and know with people and show that I'm still around, building up social networks and doing shows across the country and, you know building a team uh, with my partner, Martin Jenkins, who's been my friend since I've been five years old. You know, since he was five and I was six, we built this label and uh, we just been pushing forward. We got um, uh, Shay Davis who works for us, who's a young lady that you talked to, uh, we got, uh, Harold and we have Hero Starworth, uh, and we have Dwight Whiteside who's my signing member that works with me, and the guy named Corkscrew, and then I got a new manager that I've just started dealing with named. Uh, Courtney um Courtney, so you know we uh we are uh, we 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 push' man. we doing our thing to try to keep things going, you know with my music, and we got some big things coming this summer, you know, I'm gonna put out another album which I've been working real hard on, I got a book autobiography um that I'm putting out, um, I don't know if I'm gonna go ahead and put it out in July like I was because I really want to do a book tour with it, so. I'm kind of going to fall back on it because I know society is not going to be where it needs to be for me to really put this effort out there. I want it to be bigger. Um, But I'm talking about Gerald. I got a whole chapter. I'm talking about Gerald, and Gerald is all through the book, man, Um, along with a lot of other experiences and friends I've met along the way and just my life experiences since I was a kid. Um, So those are some of the things that I've gotten to play, and, and the coffee, of course, pushing the coffee and um just waiting for things to, you know, settle down and get back going so I can hit back on that road. But in the meantime, between time, I'm going to continue to put some music out, cut some videos, and just keep it going in the market. Keep it churning.
0: Well, whatever you got, dropping, man. You know, count on my support.
1: No so, so doubt, man. In. I appreciate you.
0: And is there anything you'd like to add? Um,
1: basically... Um, that's about it. Now, I think I've covered everything, you know, that I could cover within this interview, man. Um, I'm just, uh, really, really, uh, glad that you, uh, you know, have have interviewed me. And, um, you know, anytime you want to interview me, man, just hit me up. I'll keep you updated, keep you in the loop of what's going on. And you can put it out there and help me push, um, and help keep that real music going. And um, just, you know, that's that's basically it, man. You know, 2020, we're going to try to make the rest of this 2020 a great 2020, you know?
0: No doubt, man. And like, like I tell every artist that I interview and everything who I know is actually doing something and out there, I'm a big firm believer in that r and B's is not dead. It's just that it's not being fed to us as it once was. So it's out there. You just got to look for it. And some of the best music out isn't on the radio. And just because somebody no isn't putting music out on the radio or, you know, putting videos out doesn't mean they aren't doing music. The problem is right. you aren't looking for it. Sometimes you got to do the work I mean, yourself to find good music.
1: Yeah, man. So, once and again, then, you know, we just
0: okay, brother. All
1: right. No, go ahead. I'm saying we as already just in closing. We as artists, man, just have to really, it's is on our own hand to get out here and push and reinvest into ourselves, man. That's important because it, it takes money. You got to spend some money, man, to, uh, you know, to, to keep, you know, keep yourself in the knowing and you got to spend it. So, you know, it's all about what you put into your craft, you know, as far as investing into yourself, man. And, um, we'll push it through. You know, I, there's quite a few R&B artists, like I love Chris Brown and, you know, you got Tank out there still doing this thing, and you know, you got you got you got a nice. I think R and B is starting to round off and come back to good singers. You know, so we'll see what that we'll see what tw- what the rest of 2020 and 2021 has to uh, offer.
0: No doubt. So once again, folks, I've had the legendary Joe Little on today's interview. Hope you folks learned some stuff. I know that I did. I highly, highly encourage you all to check out the Rude Boys' first two albums if you haven't heard them. And also start reading album credits, because some of your favorite songs from the 90s all the way up to the 2000s, Joe Little may have played a part in. So do your research and, you know, put some much back on my man's name. So once again, done, with reviews and done. Be blessed, be inspired, and to quote Maurice White, keep your head to the sky. Done out.